Welcome to the More Than Corporate podcast, where we discuss finding fulfillment, defining success, and living your best life. There's no roadmap to success, no one-size-fits-all answer to fulfillment. I believe it requires us all to be vulnerable and authentic about what we want to accomplish and have the courage to step out of our comfort zone to chase our dreams. Keep listening to hear stories from inspiring people who make it their mission to live their best life every day. Welcome back to the show, everyone. My name is Amber Furman, and this is episode 24 of the More Than Corporate podcast. I'm super excited to have you tuned in for this episode where I had the opportunity to interview Hans Struzinha. Hans is able to provide some really cool insight based upon his experiences and where he's at now. And I'm super excited for you guys to listen to those and for him to be able to share those with you. Hans has a few lessons that he applies to everything that he does. First, he believes that all goals must be written down and visible on a daily basis. Second, he believes that there's no such thing as an overnight success and consistent work is the only path to success. And third, he believes that everything is the way that it is because somebody made it that way. So to understand people is to understand why the world is the way that it is. He's applied these lessons to a 12-year rowing career that culminated as a member of the 2016 USA Olympic rowing team. After the Olympics, Hans found himself a little bit lost because he had been climbing this metaphorical mountain and training for the Olympics and rowing, and he found himself not really knowing what to do with his time and feeling lost for the first few months. He found real estate, got his real estate license, and he has been pursuing all avenues in the real estate business ever since. He's a real estate partner with a Wall Street Journal Top 100 nationally ranked team called the Gunderman Group. They focus on advocacy, risk management, and exceeding clients' personal definitions of success. By staying true to those core values, they are the top team in the East Bay of the Bay Area, selling over $180 million per year with over $1.5 billion sold in total, with an average price point of $1.2 million. He's fascinated by real estate investing and completed his first flip of a house within his first year in business. Hans and his wife also invest in out-of-state multifamily properties and are actively looking for the next few deals. He wants to share the value of creating your own path and building a life of freedom. He recently started a podcast called Another Way to Play, He believes that if you trade hours for dollars, you will never achieve true freedom in your life. He brings inspiration and practical content to listeners at their own personal crossroads by interviewing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and industry experts to learn how they achieve freedom in their lives. He recently got married to the love of his life, who is also an Olympic rower and entrepreneur. She runs her own business and loves real estate investing, and they are actively building what they call their business and real estate empire. I am super excited for Hans to share with you some of the experiences that he's had through Olympic rowing and into his entrepreneurial journey and podcasting. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the interview with Hans. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Uh, Amber, you're so, so welcome. My pleasure. I am glad to have you here and glad to have the um, audience being able to listen to you. So for those who don't know, um, Hans is an Olympian rower. Um, a real estate investor. He also has a podcast called Another Way to Play. Um, and he is a real estate partner at um, the Gunderman Group. And so he has a lot of experiences to be able to talk about today. Um, what I'd like to do is have you just go ahead and start with uh, what it was like growing up and take us back to kind of the early years of Hans. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you for the opportunity to be on the show. I'm uh, absolutely thrilled to be here and uh, really excited to you know share some of what I've learned with your audience. So um, getting back to the early years, um, one big thing that defined me was uh, I was always athletic and always trying to compete at things and always wanting to win and succeed and get better, uh, mostly in the sports world. But uh, I was the kid who kind of grew late. Uh, I was always the smallest. I was shopping in the boys section uh, for back to school clothes until I think I was almost a freshman in high school or pretty close. So I, that, was, that was a memory that always stuck out to me. And um, it wasn't until much, much later that I, I grew. So I sort of developed this 
work ethic on and off the sports field that basically I just had to, I knew I had to work really hard. I had to run really fast. I had to just show up at practice and give my best to like compete and be part of the team. And I think that that defined me in a big way um, relative to both my, my athletic successes as well as some academic and business successes later. Did you find your um, height being a disadvantage to you while you were playing sports and you had to kind of overcome that or was it self-perceived? Both. Um, for example, I when I played football, uh, let's see, I started in fourth grade. So I was on the fifth grade team as my second year and I was among the bigger kids. Like, you know, no one was substantially bigger than anyone else at that point. Um, but then I showed up for sixth grade tryouts and I, all of a sudden I was in like the bottom third, just on height and weight and, you know, everyone else kind of grew and I didn't. <laughs> and so <laughs> when, when you have sort of those height or weight advantage, it disadvantages at that age, that's a huge difference. And that changes, you know, just simply what position you play, but also the opportunities you potentially get. Because, you know, the bigger kids are probably going to be a little better, a little faster, a little stronger than, than the smaller ones. Absolutely. Um, did you find yourself in a situation where you, were you had natural athletic talent that made up for that? Or was it a constant um, fighting for those positions to be able to be the best that you could be? Uh, I was definitely gifted with some athletic abilities. There's no question there. I was, I was always reasonably fast runner. Um, always had, you know, a, a re was relatively quick all, and had a mind for the games that I was playing or the sports I was playing. So could pick them up mentally pretty quick and, and could put myself in pretty decent positions. But, um, you know, like most things in my life, nothing came immediately naturally to me. So then beyond that, that initial level of like, okay, you're like an athlete, you can sort of compete here. Um, I had to work pretty hard at at most things and the size dis differential from most of my peers um, definitely forced me into kind of working harder than many of them. We're going to get into a lot of stuff as far as your um, sports background and things to that, but I want to jump ahead just a little bit because you just mentioned that you had to work nothing came immediately easy for you and we constantly talk about looking at other people's success and not getting discouraged by where you are and compared to them because they had to work really hard to get there. Did you mm -hmm. find that anything came immediately easy to anybody in the sports world? Were there, were there people that just showed up and had it or did everybody kind of work their ass off and you just saw the end product? Well, I think that generally speaking, um, the, especially if you watch sports on TV, you are seeing the end product of a lifetime of, of effort. I, I do believe that there are some, you know, just genetically speaking, I think that there are some people who are predisposed to be good at certain sports and others. My sport was absolutely none of the sports that I tried initially. I suppose I could have been very good at a lot of things, but, um, Turns out I have really, really large, like freakishly large lungs for my size, which is kind of a weird thing to say. Like I have, I think there are over nine liters of oxygen, like nine liter lungs. I've, I've been VO2 maxed and measured and stuff, um, which is absolutely perfect for like rowing and for cross country skiing. Like the, like that is what you want. But I, I hadn't found that sort of niche of like that thing that I, my body was predisposed towards, but I was trying football and basketball and all that stuff. Um, but to get to your broader point, uh, regardless of the, the physical abilities, like, you know, there's always the tall kid in, in school uh, who's like, oh, you should play basketball because you're tall. Like, yes, there's a certain advantage inherently of being five inches taller than everyone else on the court. But to get beyond that to a, to a higher level, you have to work. There's no question. Absolutely. Um, other than rowing, which we will find out was kind of your sweet spot for getting into the Olympics, but was there another sport that you, what was your favorite sport to play? Was it rowing or was it something else? Uh, growing up, I really enjoyed football. Uh, and I was, I was actually very good at it for my age. And then I broke my arm and that totally changed my mentality around it. And, um, 
from there, I just, I sort of lost my, my same aggression and flying around the field, hitting people and all that stuff, which in retrospect was probably good based on all the, the brain injury and concussion studies that have been coming out. But, um, that was one I really enjoyed. And then one that I played a little bit, but never got super into because I, I only picked it up as a senior was wrestling. By that point, I had grown and I had filled out and I was hitting the weights a lot. And so I was just physically pretty good, uh, just a pretty, pretty good senior in high school uh, athlete. And I could sort of pick up some of the moves as I went. But that's one I wish I would have started a little earlier because I, I found that to be so fun. Yeah, I've, I've um, I grew up in a town where wrestling was was big, and everybody seemed to really enjoy it. Um, what what was it about leaving football? Was it something that you just you didn't want to get hurt, or was it that having those injuries wasn't worth the passion that you had for the game? Gosh, I mean, we're we're talking about like sixth, seventh grade, so I don't know <laughs> that I had. Well, part of it was my high school. I went to a small private high school. We didn't have a football team. And so it was not an option to play for the high school. So it was all club. And then you had to go try out for the local high school team if you wanted to go play at you know, a bigger level. And that ultimately between the injury, my size issue, and just you know, focusing on trying track and trying basketball and some of these other things, uh, I think that's just what steered me in the opposite direction. I only ask because, you know, we hear conversations all the time about whether parents are going to continue, mothers predominantly, but whether they're going to continue to allow their kids to play football because of the risk versus the reward type mm -hmm. of analysis. And so that was an interesting comment to me that you made. Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly a violent game that, you know, you're, you're putting up pads and tackling each other. It's just what it is. And I think everyone has to sort of try and make an educated decision for themselves it's a fantastic game and uh, I I enjoy I never like I said got into it at a really deep level and I'm learning more about the strategy and the different defenses and personnel packages and stuff and I think that's really a cool sport for those reasons but you know to to play it again is you know I would have to think very seriously knowing what I know now given all the data and all the studies that have been coming out for sure so when did rowing come into your life so uh, I'm from Seattle originally, and, and Seattle is surrounded by water in almost any direction that you look, uh, whether it be the Puget Sound or Lake Washington. And uh, rowing is a huge tradition up there, so much so that it's actually the oldest, the second oldest sport at the University of Washington, uh, only a couple years uh, younger than football, believe it or not. Wow. And... Um, and for a long time, it was like the number one sport in the city. Like everyone sort of knows about rowing in that city. So we as a family heard that you could take, you know, private rowing lessons down on the lake. And we thought it would be fun to try that. So one summer uh, before my sophomore year, um, wasn't really doing anything, uh, you know, sport wise over the summer. So we gave that a shot. And then that led, um, couple lessons there as a family led into joining the rec team joining the fall program and then just going from there and it was was it something that immediately clicked for you or did you have to kind of convince yourself that it was a good idea you know it's funny there are, I have two memories um that's predate this this rowing experience one is uh, you know how the NCAA will put commercials on during the football games of like all the sports yeah. um I it, there was like a cut shot of like one stroke worth of rowing and I saw that and something about it just sort of resonated with me and I think I must have been like 12 or 13 at this time and I and then I never thought much of it after that and then as I said relative to Seattle's tradition in rowing uh we have a tradition every May called opening day regatta and it's officially marks the opening day of boating season which is not really a, a an actual thing but it's sort of a it's just a fun like let's get together the weather is finally not totally raining so like let's go out on our boats and like have a big boat parade and then about 30 something years ago they started 
introducing a rowing race as part of this and has been running at the University of Washington um, where they've invited international crews. And, you know, they, the first one was the Russians back in the day. And, and that was a really big deal because that was the first time communist athletes competed on uh, American water uh, since I, I think ever, if not, you know, at least pre-World Wars. And, um, and I was uh, on a boat and saw the, saw these guys rowing down the, the Montlake cut and just the, just kind of the symmetry and the effort and like the, the beauty, but the rawness of it, it just, I don't know what it was, but it sort of triggered something. And then I got this opportunity to hop in a boat myself, you know, join the rec team and, you know, you just start to feel like something's fun and something's right. So I just kept going with it. That's awesome. So you start um, rowing and then at what point in time does the goal of training for the Olympics come in? Um, was there a time that you remember that you thought, okay, maybe this is really where I want to go? Was that always the goal? No, that was not always the goal. Um, first goal was simply to like get on the, the, the competitive team and make like make it basically like maybe make it into the JV boat my first year, um, which I sort of did, you know, for some races, I was kind of on that cusp of like JV 3V. And then the next year I got into it. I re everyone was like, you have to go through the end of, to regionals to the final race of the year. It's so much fun. And, and you just got to wait, you got to suck it up and, and wait through. Cause it's a little miserable in the middle of the season um, when you're pretty far from racing and you're just training all the time. Uh, but they were right. I, I got, you know, went down the, the 2K race course, uh, was trading, you know, stroke for stroke with this other crew. And we, we barely edged out a victory in the 3v8, uh, my first regionals. And it was so much fun. And I just got hooked with it. And then from there, it was like, okay, now I want to try and make the varsity for my, my junior year did that. Um, and then senior year was like, you know, be captain, maybe get recruited, pull a really good ERG score. And, and the ERG is the rowing machine, which um, is a kind of a standard work piece of workout equipment in any boathouse. And then from there, it's like, go to college, maybe you just make the freshman eight, you know, then it sort of turned into like, okay, maybe I'm good enough to do national team stuff. And then it was like, okay, go to under 23 camp, make an under 23 team. And then once I made my first under 23 team, I was like, okay, I think, you know, I'm seeing the talent from around the country. I think I can probably hang with these guys. Um, now maybe I, I should make it a goal of trying to make the senior team and then we'll see where the Olympics play into that. But it, it was sort of just a, a next progression. It didn't pick up an oar and get in the boat the first time be like I'm gonna row at the Olympics like that is definitely not what happened <laughs> yeah I you know it's funny because um I grew up watching a lot of gymnastics and I, I watched these kids say like I wanted to go to the Olympics since I was like four and so I find I mean I don't want to say I find that hard to believe because I'm sure they work so hard for it but it takes some time to realize that number one that's possible and number two you want to put in the work to get there because nobody gets there without putting in a shit ton of work Exactly. And gymnastics is kind of a funny one. I've, I've known a lot of gymnasts through college and through um, the Olympics. And uh, I think it's like once you're kind of like once you're in college, you've kind of peaked. You've, you're, or you're on the other side of having peaked. So, you know, a gymnast, we all sort of like hold the gymnast in such high regard of like 14, 16 year old gymnasts, you know, winning Olympic gold medals. But like, that like physically there isn't a going back to the physical thing you just have a growth plate advantage and a and sort of a flexibility advantage that a 22 year old doesn't have as versus a sport like rowing because it's so cardiovascularly driven you know you are rewarded by doing more years of training and your system your body um adapts to it and, and has more capacity as a result so actually the older you get and the longer you're in the sport the better you can be and it's and it's a really interesting like when you look at all the olympic sports how they just have such different trajectories in that way for sure 100 percent. so which olympics were you in i went to rio de janeiro in 2016 and what was that experience like can you describe it a little bit yeah it was both uh everything I thought it would be and unlike anything I had ever experienced at the same time. 
do you have, and I'm sure there's so many, but do you have like a specific um, lesson or um, kind of learning that you take from your Olympic training through everything that you do in your life now? One of the biggest things uh, for, for me personally was, so you know what, there's two. Um, one of them is it is that it to to do achieve anything on that level, um, whatever that means for you, takes a minimum amount of time. Like I I also tried out for the 2012 team and was cut and and just I I maybe had enough skill to like have a better shot than I than I and perform a little better than I did ultimately. But you know I was young. I didn't understand how a national team training cycle worked i didn't understand i wasn't probably as technically sound as i needed to be um physically i I maybe could have done it but you know having some experience and just understanding that it's not going to like one year you're going to start and then the next year you're going to be in the olympics like probably not going to happen um so understanding that these big goals takes a a minimum amount of time and I, i like to use the example of a marathon like the world record marathon's just over two hours and it's like, oh my gosh, that's so fast. But then you think about that, that's two hours or 120 minutes of running as fast as you can for, you know, 24 miles or and change. It's like, you can't even fathom that. Like a three hour marathon is screaming fast and it still takes three hours. Yeah. So that was one big one um, that as I even say this, like I am totally guilty of wanting to like speed up the process and, and go faster than I, maybe I should. And I'm by, some people would tell me I'm going really fast already, but you know, I have to kind of take a step back and recalibrate my, uh, and my thoughts on what the amount of time it should take to be a great realtor or be a great investor or, or what have you. And I mean, those are all personal um, timeframes that you have to set too. I mean, as far as how long it should take, there's no, there's no, you know, rule book that says it's going to take this long to get to um, being a great realtor or being great at whatever you want to do, but it's going to take a certain amount of time and you have to decide based upon where you're at, how much time you can put towards it and what surroundings you're in, um, whether what that time frame is for you. Completely. And, and your own internal dialogue relative to your expectations like you were absolutely your worst own critic um and i and i think it's really helpful especially if that resonates with you to get the opinion of others whether you have friends who can kind of check you or you have a mastermind group or you have a coach or whatever like having that those outside opinions and having someone who's willing to like basically call you on your nonsense is really helpful and obviously that's different for everybody. You don't want someone just talking shit to you the whole time. <laughs> um, but, uh, but having that outside perspective can be really important, especially in this entrepreneurship world. We can, we can be basically pretty isolated on our own little islands and think that we should be doing better than we are. And then think, you know, our results are like, I'll take myself, for example, like I'm achieving you know, closings and goals and metrics and numbers that I'm, I've been striving for for the last handful of years, but then I'm like not satisfied with them. And someone actually uh, t- yesterday told me, he's like, dude, take your cape off. You're 30. Like you're doing really well. Like, yes, we can probably find some areas that you can improve in, but like, like just take a second and recognize what you're doing. Um, and so that really, uh, has been resonating with me over the last 24 hours of, um, you know, just t- take a minute and appreciate where you are and what you've done and, and get some outside perspective, which on the flip side is not to say like, you know, pull, pull back on your goals and, and be cool with like whatever, you know, rest on your laurels, so to say, like, that's not what I'm saying at all, but it, you know, bring some perspective into, into the conversation is, I think it would be really healthy. It's healthy for me at least. <laughs> I think it's necessary because otherwise, I mean, we just end up number one, beating ourselves down and even acknowledging your accomplishments is so important. And it, I know for me, it's ridiculously hard to acknowledge my accomplishments because I never feel like I'm done. 
And mm -hmm. so I'm always like, well, where, I mean, yeah, I'm here, but I need to be over here. So yep. what am I, what am I stopping for? And I've definitely been guilty of the short game mentality. So the idea of like remembering, even in my business, like a two year business, that's not very long yet. I want everything now. And you have to remember yep. that that's not the way life works in any men, in any area. So. And a couple of people have mentioned this to me more casually than anything, but uh, have just told me over the last handful of months, um, you know, you, you really will overestimate what you can do in a year and underestimate what you can do in five. And that sort of goes back to like that minimum amount of time thing. Like if you and I set 12 month goals and we set them real big and we come up short, like, shoot, we failed. Um, but if you really look at it on a longer trajectory and you're looking like, okay, what about, what if I just set a, a five-year trajectory of 20% growth year over year? Like, what would that have to look like? You'd probably hit those numbers sooner than the five years. Uh, you know, you'd hit them in year two or three or something, you know, whatever that is. Yeah, absolutely. We're always a little further along than we think we are. I know when I started, I couldn't set five-year goals. Like, it was almost impossible for me to see what five years looked like. Um, until you start realizing what you can accomplish and then you're like, okay, now this is where I want to go. Absolutely. And, uh, I don't know if you wanted to shift over to the second thing that I mentioned about learning yes. or if you had another point there. No, no, no. That's perfect. You read so, my mind. Fantastic. The second thing that really came to me is everyone's had this feeling at one point or another when you're nervous for something and you get those butterflies and you get jittery. Um, and for me, it was, it was always like the warm up and then launching and then sitting, you know, doing your warm up on the water and then sitting at the, at the start line. And I sort of knew that when we went to the uh, final, like if we got into the final, which we felt pretty good that we could do based on our, our times and our speed, um, and we ultimately did, you know, I knew that that there was going to be a moment that was like, oh my gosh, this is the Olympic final. Like this is it. And, you know, everyone's going to have to handle this their own way. And so I always knew like, as opposed to being like being nervous or not being nervous, I never focused on not being nervous because I knew it was just going to happen. And so I always thought about, uh, channeling, those nerves are channeling the butterflies in one direction, which in this case was down the race course. And I have to give credit to my freshman coach and then ironically Olympic coach, Luke McGee for that one. And he told me, he told me that like, you know, everyone's going to be nervous. Everyone's going to be sitting at that final, like worried about the result. Like, don't worry about the nerves, like get those things moving in the right direction. And then once the flag drops and the buzzer goes off and you start the race, like just do your first stroke and then do your second stroke and then, and then move it. And I, not to say that I wasn't nervous again, but I, I felt at ease with the whole process. I felt ready. I felt prepared. And I thought personally, I had everything moving in the direction that I wanted it to go uh, once we arrived at that start line. That's awesome. And I'm sure that there's so much that you can take from that that goes into what you're doing now, because we, we have no way of knowing whether what we're doing is working out. We just kind of have to put our head down and keep making movements in the right direction and then, you know, look up and, and redirect when we need to. So I'm sure that helps a lot in your business world. Absolutely. I'm interested to know as far as your first um, tryout for the Olympic team in 2012, what was the mentality when you didn't make that team? Was there ever a point that you thought maybe this isn't for me or was it let's go back and regroup and, and shoot for the next tryout? So I finished my college rowing season in June of 2011, took my finals a couple days later, and then packed my car and drove to San Diego to, to join the team. Um, and, and then I was with them for just about a year uh, when I, or not quite a year and followed the team kind of around to a few training locations and ultimately, you know, got, 
cut and, you know, had a great experience, learned a ton about all of, you know, training and just being in a competitive environment and seat racing and taking care of yourself after two a days and months and months of that. So when I got cut, uh, no, I, I never had a, a thought of like not pursuing rowing partially because that wasn't really a full four years for me. I sort of came in at the very end and I always sort of thought like, I really want to have a full quadrennial um, to do this. But I absolutely had moments after that, like in 2014, when we had just a total disaster year, we didn't even make the national team and we were like third or fourth at trials. Like we just totally flopped, even though we had talent to potentially win and, and go compete. We just, underperformed and I and I did seriously think like why am I living in California on very little money trying to make this Olympic team and I always came back to as we talked about that forward thinking goal and in and in athletics you have a shelf life like you even if you're you know as we talked about you're a gymnast you have a shelf life as an as a rower even if as you get a little bit older you can get better, but you still have a shelf. Like if, like if you're 40, you just physically cannot compete with someone who's 28 and has been training. Like it's just not going to happen. And so I always thought like, if I'm 40 and just physically beyond my ability to do this, like, am I going to be satisfied with the work I've put in and, and knowing that I put everything out on the table to, to achieve this? And the answer was every single time, no. And when I, when I came up against that, it all, it was just a simple decision. It was like, well, I can't let this go yet. Like I, I haven't gotten everything out of this that I wanted. I haven't put everything into it that I want, that I know I'm capable of putting into it. I absolutely love that conversation with yourself. Like it's so important to have that. And it's so important to understand. I mean, people say, understand your why, understand your why. And it sounds like such a kind of, um, foo-foo mantra that self-development mm -hmm. people say, but it is so important in everything you do. Yeah. And, you know, like I, like I said, like I, you know, I think everyone who, especially who pursues entrepreneurship in, in one way or another feels like they have something deeper to offer, like some, something really big that they can do, whatever that is. And I think a lot of us you know, can easily run into those obstacles of like, well, someone else is already running this po a podcast like mine, or, oh, someone already started a business like this, or there's no room for me. Like, what can I add to the conversation? Blah, 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 like whatever. And if you want to be all results oriented, that's fine, but you're going to have a very binary relationship with success. It's either going to be success or fail. And, and more often than not, if it doesn't meet the exact definition of the goal, it's a fail and that sucks and you're probably going to get discouraged. To me, it's a little bit more about like, what am I capable of? Like, do I in my core feel like I'm getting everything out of here that I possibly can? And if the answer is yes, and then you've just found your limit, like, okay, like if I, if I really truly gave everything I had to the Olympic games and didn't make it, but I knew that I was the best version of myself and I put everything in that I could have, I probably would have been okay with that to be totally honest with you i it would have sucked like i could have, of course i would have liked to make it but in retrospect i would have been okay um knowing that i saw where my potential was but i but i just knew that i i was able to do it frankly and, I, and that's what kept me going that's awesome so you um when when you competed in the olympics was it did you have your team that you competed with all along? How was the team formed? Did you guys pick it before or? It was a team that had been together for a while. We had more or less the core group had been training together for at least four years and unfortunately had a, had a poor performance in 2015. Um, and so there's a limited number of boats that get entries into the Olympics, uh, depending on the boat class in the, in the eight category, which is what I was in, uh, there's seven total. And five of those spots are secured by a finish uh, in the top five at the world championships the year before. So it's very competitive at that event. The US entry did not finish in the top four, or excuse me, top five. And um, so they, uh, they kept that core group, but they invited a bunch of other people in who were training at other locations. I was one of those people. And that's a whole nother conversation how I got there. But um, 
so they added a, a bunch of guys, some guys that graduated college, some guys like me who were training at some other locations. And uh, so we, we kind of expanded this talent pool and then basically the coaches built a more competitive uh, environment and, and ra we raced multiple times a week in various forms and fashions and uh, cut, you know, did our first round of cuts just before Christmas in uh, we in a training camp in Florida. And then after Christmas, everyone went home for two weeks on your own training. We came back together in San Diego with a slightly smaller group, spent three months in San Diego at the Olympic Training Center in uh, Chula Vista, which is about 30 minutes from downtown San Diego. Uh, did a lot of selection, a lot of erg testing, a lot of on the water racing. Um, and slowly but surely boats and pecking orders started to come together. And, um, you know, guys were switched directly across from one another and seat raced and, you know, one second here, one second there kind of thing. And, um, and then at the end of all of that, we went back to Princeton and we had a pretty good idea of what the group was going to look like. There was a few more seat races that needed to happen. Um, they did those seat races. And um, ultimately, after a couple of days of selection in, in that, uh, back in Princeton, New Jersey, that's when they decided to finalize the crew. And that was actually a little bit early than is typical because we didn't qualify the year before. We had to go... Uh, to what's called the last chance qualification regatta, which is in Lucerne, Switzerland, in May um, for the Olympics, which were in August. And um, basically anyone, any country that's entry didn't qualify the year before can show up. And basically it's top two uh, go and everyone else's Olympic dream is over at that regatta. And so there's a lot riding on that, on that race. And so we went and we won by a 10th of a second. Oh, wow. And it was just an unbelievable, like there were three boats within like a quarter second. It was, it was a barn burner at the end. And uh, we came out on top of that and, and got to go as a result. That's amazing. I mean, I just, I love your um, Olympic story because you learned so much about it towards business um, <laughs> and life and everything um, related to, you know, success and failure. Um, what was the transition like into real estate? Did you immediately move into the real estate world? How did you find that? So I had always figured I would, I would be involved in real estate at some level. That's largely because my grandfather was a big real estate developer in Seattle. Two of my uncles were in the business. As a result of that, my, my dad was an attorney and he specialized in real estate and business law. Um, so it was always sort of around me growing up and I always figured I would get in on the commercial side, but, um, actually through a variety of training camps over the years that I had done down in San Diego, uh, I had stayed with this couple through Airbnb and they at the time were flipping houses and they were licensed realtors and they were doing some really interesting investment stuff. So I was like, Hey, what do you guys do? Um, and when I was staying with them, they were both home, middle of the day. She was uh, doing outrigger canoe paddling uh, pretty competitively, but at an amateur level. He was training for an Ironman. They had three kids. I was like, hmm, this seems like a pretty cool lifestyle. What do they do? And just stayed in touch with them. And long story short is after the Olympics, they um, offered to you know, bring me into their system and, you know, teach me what they were doing and um, from the agent side, but also the investment side. And I, I felt like, hey, I'm not really ready to go hop into an office. This seems pretty flexible if I wanted to go back to training and said yes. And that was sort of the catalyst launching me into the residential real estate side. That's pretty cool that those two worlds kind of meshed for you between the fitness side and and the real estate business side. What um, has been your favorite part of being involved in the real estate so far? Gosh, my favorite part. Um, I, I like a couple of things. The, the, the overarching thing that I love is the how dynamic all of these transactions are. Even if you've done a deal with the same buyer, the same seller, the same agents, uh, or the, you know, the same relative circumstances, it's going to find a way to be different. Uh, 
and it's so you you really can't you know phone it in at any given point because of that of how fluid and dynamic it is uh, plus um, the market's always changing you know especially around here in the bay area people are always coming and going you know interest rates are up or they're down you know tech money's in it's out it's up it's you know whatever there's always some crazy stuff going on that you sort of have to take into account relative to writing offers or selling properties. So that's really fun. Plus, I love all the verticals and all the different ways you can be involved, whether it's an, as an agent or you want to flip some houses or you want to do a house hack where you buy a crappy house, you fix it up and you sell it two years later with no capital gains or, you know, you buy a duplex, live in one, rent the other, cover your costs, whatever it is. Like there's so many ways to be involved in the space that um, take little to no experience all the way up to like syndicating, you know, hundred million dollar apartment um, portfolios and, you know, being at a very institutional level, like there's a variety of ways to be involved. Yeah. I think people forget that when it comes to the real estate world, because you think that um, if you're going to be involved in real estate, you either have to be um, an agent or a broker, or you have to be involved in owning these multi-million dollar deals. Um, people forget that there's so um, many other diverse ways to be involved. Um, and, 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 you know, I went, did you go to rise this year in LA? I did not. Um, going next year though. It was a fantastic event, but I went, um, having no interest in real estate. And that was one of the things that really stuck out to me as you kind of how diverse it is and how much you can be involved with whatever resources you have at that point in time, you can find a way to be involved and make it a, um, business opportunity for yourself. And even if you personally don't care to go like walk properties and read reports and comps and all that stuff, like you can go partner with somebody who like myself wants to do all that work. And is what, like, if you bring some money into the equation um, and are willing to sort of learn how to underwrite some of this stuff, that's, you know, that's great and understand it for yourself. And then you can partner with someone who's willing to go do the legwork and go get the financing and do all the other stuff and be involved, diversify your portfolio, get a solid return on whatever your cash is and um, be involved very passively too. Yeah, we forget about that in everything that we do. We see something um, and think that we have to do every part of it in order to make it happen instead of piecing it out and being more productive by bringing in multiple different people that can do the things that they enjoy to make it a bigger um, success. And I think it's Brandon Turner on the Bigger Pockets podcast talks about sort of this trifecta, if you will, of, um, of, skills you need to invest in real estate. And I think this is applicable to more than just real estate, but you need uh, money, you need hustle, and you need knowledge, or the hustle could go for time. And you really only need two of those, and then you can kind of farm out the third. So if you have money and some knowledge, you need to, but you probably don't have the time, you can go find someone to go like underwrite all these deals or go knock on these doors or whatever for you. But if you don't have any money, but you are reading books, going to conferences and podcasts and like building relationships, but um, you want to go find some deals. You're like, Oh, I found one. Uh, let's go find someone who has some money who's looking to put it to work. And you can really kind of grab two of those and then farm out the third. And I, I think that that's a really so true way to, to be involved is you don't have to learn everything to get started. That's awesome. So at some point in time throughout your journey, you decide that you want to start a podcast. Talk about that a little bit. I, so, <laughs> um, I always subscribe to Gary. Well, I'm on and off with Gary V and, and I say that because like the stuff that he says, like pisses me off enough that like, I will eventually unfollow him, but then inevitably a month or two later, I will, I will resubscribe to his Instagram or whatever it is. And he's always talking about creating content, especially for someone who's in the service industry. Like you're an attorney, I'm a real estate agent. Like we have to sort of build these personal brands and create content, um, which I was always like, I don't know why I was always, maybe it's just the way he says it like rub, irks me. I don't know. <laughs> but I had been thinking very seriously about this for a year as far as like, what medium am I going to pursue? And nothing was really sticking with me. But then I found 
through Bigger Pockets podcast, a real like the number one real estate investing podcast out there right now. Uh, Travis Chapel got interviewed on it, and he obviously is how you and I know each other. Um, and he has his podcast called Build Your Network, and he basically was making a case for starting a podcast, which um, involves having an excuse to go talk to people, have interesting conversations like what we're doing now, um, building a personal brand as a result of it all. And um, so that finally really resonated with me like, okay, I'm, I see the value here and I think it's time to take some action because uh, if that's not a sign, I don't know what is. So <laughs> reached out to Travis, uh, he and I connected. Uh, he became a coach. Uh, I hired him to be my coach rather. Uh, help, he helped me kind of flush out my ideas and um, you know, put a structure around this. And then I have taken that and run with it. That's awesome. So what's the name of your podcast? It's called Another Way to Play. And what's the content? So I start every single episode by saying, I believe that if you trade hours for dollars, you will never achieve true freedom in your life. And so what I am really trying to tease out of the interviews is a sort of, a, sort of like what we've talked about, like a journey and a general theme that has led people through their life. And then ultimately what has given, like what was the catalyst, if there was one, um, to help them understand another way to approach life other than sort of the nine to five, um, you know, go to high school, go to college, get a good job, get a promotion, have a, you know, get married, have kids, buy a house, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, retire on a pension or something and recognize that there is more to life than a commute, an eight hour desk job and a commute home, basically. So much. And I love the message and I'm so much looking forward to your success with that because um, obviously through what you said in the comparisons to this podcast and what you're going to be doing differently. Um, it's a message that everybody needs to hear over and over again. Um, we get caught in a capitalistic society of focusing on career and kind of letting everything go or thinking about career and family and those two things being the only things that matter. And we forget about everything else that drives our fulfillment. And there's a really interesting Gosh, I, I, I wish I could give credit to whoever said this, but there's a story that floats around the podcast world that I've heard a few times, which is basically, you know, we spend 40 years uh, making all this money at the detriment of our health and spend the next 20 to 40 years, depending on how long you live, um, you know, spending the money to, to fix our health or get our health back or, or stabilize it. And, you know, it's, it's like so true when you really think about it. Um, that weird cycle that we're like, oh, just make the money and then you'll be fine in the future. And then we end up having to like, you know, drain the 401k account to pay for the medicine and the surgeries and the whatever. And like, why, why does that have to be that way? Like, I, I don't know. Like, are we asking that question? Why? And that's something that I'm hoping guests of my show and probably your show too and, and uh, people listening are beginning to ask themselves, like, why are we doing it this way? And, and is this the only way, in my case, to play? Like, is this the only way to do it? And frankly, the answer is absolutely not. There are a lot of ways to do it. And through my show and your show, you know, we're hopefully offering some inspirations, some insight on what those other ways are and the way people have thought through and, and executed on on living those alternative, quote unquote, alternative lifestyles. Yeah, I love it. And I think, um, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before the kind of change in societal norms that now believe that you can have a job and be happy with that job at the same time, rather than, you know, my generation growing up, it was, you go to work and whether you like your job or not, you're just trying to make money and then you go home and spend time with your family. And so I'm really um, looking forward to see where this goes in the future with the idea that you can actually enjoy your job and make money and support your family at the same time. You need to stop it with that kind of radical thinking. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> For sure. For sure. I know I'm going to end Happy up and make money. Like, no, get out of here. <laughs> right. <laughs> you must be miserable at all yes. times to make anything of yourself. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. If it's not a challenge, it's not an accomplishment, right? 
Exactly. Um, so I want to ask you a few questions um, about, you know, kind of the heart of this podcast and the idea of success and fulfillment. Um, I'm interested to know what your definition of success is and whether that's changed for you throughout your life. One of, I don't know that I have a formal definition, but a big, big component is something we alluded to earlier, which is, am I achieving at the level which I feel I can attain? And I recognize that there are, that is both empowering and disempowering at the same time because if I feel that I have more capacity than what I'm providing right now it can be inspiring but it can also be um, a, ne a huge negative and, and make me feel basically like crap like I'm not doing what I need to do um, and, I'm, and I'm working personally to sort of re-engage with that um, definition and, and sort of turn it into something a little bit more empowering and a little bit more positive, but that's a big part of it for me. As far as comfort zones, I mean, anybody who's listened to my podcast knows that I despise comfort zones. And I'm sure that through your sports um, background, you spent mm -hmm. a lot of time outside of your comfort zone, but can you talk about how pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone has impacted your success and how you run your businesses now? So I'll give you, give you an example. Like I'm obviously had been in the athletic world and physically pushing my body for a long time. And that was a way that I physically got out of my comfort zone is, is through exercise and through racing and competition. Um, that is sort of my default go-to and that is something that I still do. So an exercise routine is something that I, I really value and make sure that I am exercising, not just for the sake of health, which I certainly do, but also for the mentality of it, because that is a way that I know I'm really good at sort of pushing myself. And I, I try and make sure that I'm doing things that are physically pushing myself every day, or at least five, six times a week. So that I'm, I'm sort of flexing that muscle of getting uncomfortable and working through it so that I can take that muscle and apply it into my business, whether it's having a really tough conversation with a client or negotiating a deal that's uncomfortable and calling the agent on the other side. It's like, yeah, I'm about to ask you or tell you that, you know, you didn't get the deal or you have to come up a lot of money or we're going to hit you with this request for repairs or whatever that's uncomfortable. But if I'm constantly sort of exercising it in one part of my life, I can start to bleed that over into my business um, and sort of lean into that discomfort in a new way because I've sort of ex keep my foot on the gas with it every day. 100%. I love that you just um, related those two because I've always said that it's impossible to push yourself out of your comfort zone in one area of your life and not have that go into every other area of your life. Um, and so I love that analogy. Um, what is one of your biggest failures and how did you learn from it and have it impact your life in a positive way? Oh, my biggest failures. Um, I would say the Olympics was, was a big failure. We as a team, um, I mean, we went in into that final, like I said, uh, with an opportunity to medal and I physically, uh, on paper, like all, you know, even just some of the times we had put down, uh, racing and training and what have you were, were competitive enough to medal. And we ended up being fourth. And that was largely because we just did not have our best race on that day. And that stuck with me for a long time. And I had to really work through that. And I think that, personally was a catalyst for me to both recognize some of the insecurities I had around uh, my my identity and, and how I had attached it to rowing, but also to work through like, what does failure mean? Like, does the fact that I didn't medal at the Olympics mean that the entire 12 year rowing career was a failure? Or is it just like, can I detach from that result for a second and look at all the positive things that have come through rowing, both just, I mean, my wife came through rowing, a bunch of friendships, you know, my physical condition, you know, the fact that I went to college and I got to train and race all over the world, like met all these amazing people. I was 
the best man and a guy from Serbia's wedding. Like, you know, how does that happen? Were it not for rowing stuff like that. And, um, you know, looking at like the bigger picture here and, and recognizing like, yeah, it would be really cool to have a medal, but I'd still be the same exact person with or without the medal. And like, yeah, that would have been cool to like have that validated in that way. And I still think like if we would have re-raced it and we would have really had our best race, we could have done it. But that's why you race it on the day. You get one shot and you and you do it. It's so important to, to um, realize that because so many people, they need to step back and realize that they're the same person. I love that you just said I'm the same person with or without the medal um, because we forget that and we get our, our identity tied to whatever we're working towards, um, our education, our finances, whatever it is we're working for. And we forget that that doesn't define who we are. There, there's a book I read recently uh, called Win Bigly by Scott Adams. He's the author of Dilbert, for those of you who haven't heard of him. And aside from having an absolutely hysterical writing style, which I, I really emulate, I would love to write like him. Um, he has a really great portion of this book that talks about how goals are for losers. And I, of course, that's like a clickbait sort of thing to throw out there. But he said, goals are for losers, systems are for winners. And he basically talks about detaching from the result because it has a binary relationship to success. Like you either, you, you lose the weight or you don't, you hit the, the finance, like you, you make the amount of money, you close the deal or you don't. And you either, it's a yes or a no, as opposed to the system. It's like, okay, if I'm going to try and lose 20 pounds, uh, I need to have a system of like, I'm going to go to the gym for 30 minutes every day and I'm going to like cut this thing out of my diet. And like, am I hitting the system? And and then it's like, regardless of whether you lose the 20 pounds, like the success relies on the system and, and sort of following it um, as opposed to like losing the 20. Absolutely. I love it. I'm going to have to check out that book. It sounds amazing. Do it. I will. It'll be next on my reading list. So before we um, end, I want to do just a quick random round and let everybody get to know you just a little bit more, if that's okay with you. Fantastic. Can't wait. All right. Um, other than what you're doing now, the multiple things you're doing now, um, what profession do you think would be fun to attempt? Definitely a, like a paid professional athlete, like someone who can actually make a living for a sport. Like that would be pretty fun. Um, were it not for that, um, I, I honestly think I'm doing something that I would really like to be doing. I, I'm definitely interested in the apartment syndication space. So, so I'm working towards that, but that is uh, just from a knowledge base standpoint, but that is something that I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting into. Awesome. Um, if you could time travel, where would you go and why? I have a lot of thoughts about this answer. And I think the one that I'm I'm thinking of right now is going into uh, the just being a fly on the wall in the planning rooms of the of the generals and everybody for D-Day, and deciding like how and when they were going to invade uh, Nazi-controlled Europe, and and knowing that like that operation's success or failure could hold you know the the free world in the balance, and I I would want to be in like see what that was like and understand the thought process and what they were going through. So that, that I, that's my answer. Love it. What personality trait has been the most helpful to you throughout your journey? Personality trait that has been most helpful through my journey, um, I think is my uh, work ethic and the, my ability to work really hard, which has also been a bit of a detriment in some cases because I can, I'm really good at like muscling things and, and controlling things through, whether it's a, a transaction through escrow or a, you know, rowing boat <laughs> um, and learning to, and then I've, I've, as a result, had to learn how to be a little bit more finesse and like delegate and that sort of thing. And I, um, but I, but I think the work ethic has gotten me a lot. Awesome. Um, and then what are you reading right now? Are you reading or listening to anything that motivates you right now? I've got two that I'm reading right now. Um, one is a Joe Fairless book on apartment syndication. And like I said, I'm, I'm working to educate myself on that. 
whole side of the business and learn more because it's something that I think I want to be involved in at some point. Um, but the other one that is less of a how-to for apartment syndicators and more of a leadership book is called Good to Great by Jim Collins. I am just every time I open it, I get real excited and I just, it's sort of a page turner, um, but it's dense. So you're not turning pages all that often, but I like the insights in it are just fascinating. And, and the, the research behind it is just amazing. They went so deep and took five years to write this book because all the research was so thick and dense. And um, there's so much in there to unpack. And I think that I, I'm in the process of sort of building a book list of things that I want to read every year. And that is so far one of those books that's going to go on it. All right. So before we end and wrap up today, where can people find you on social media if they want to follow up on what you're doing with your business, with your podcast? Instagram is my number one go-to at the moment. And my handle is Chief Sna, S-N-A-H, which is Hans backwards. Awesome. All right, we will go ahead and throw that in the show notes. And if anybody is interested in obviously learning more about you, they need to absolutely go check out your podcast. It's um, going to be fantastic. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the show. I hope that something that was said resonated with you or provided value to you in one way or another. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on the show. You can reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram at Amber Furman. Also, I've created a Facebook community for followers of the show to interact with me and other members of the community. You can find that on Facebook at More Than Corporate. So go ahead and join that group if you'd like to stay up to date on podcast happenings and meet some really cool people. Again, thanks so much for tuning in.